The Method of Grace by John Flavel of The Nature, Principle, and Necessity of Mortification of Sin. Galatians 5, verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Two great trials of our interest in Christ are finished. We now proceed to the third, namely, the mortification of sin. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. The scope of the apostle in this context is to heal the unchristian breaches among the Galatians, prevailing by the instigation of Satan to the breach of brotherly love. To cure this, he urges four weighty arguments. First, from the great commandment to love one another upon which the whole law, in other words, all the duties of the second table depend. Verse 15. Secondly, he powerfully dissuades them from the consideration of the sad events of their bitter contest, calumnies, and detractions, namely mutual ruin and destruction, verse 15. Thirdly, he dissuades them from the consideration of the contrariety of these practices to the Spirit of God, by whom they all profess themselves to be governed, from verses 17 to verse 33. Fourthly, he powerfully dissuades them from these animosities, from the inconsistency of these or any other loss of the flesh with an interest in Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. You all profess yourselves to be members of Christ, to be followers of him. But how incongruous are these practices to such a profession? Is this a fruit of the dove-like spirit of Christ? Are these the fruits of your faith and professed mortification? Shall the sheep of Christ snarl and fight like rabid and furious beasts of prey? So much rage in heavenly souls. Oh, how repugnant are these practices with the study of mortification, which is a great study and endeavor of all that are in Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So much for the order of the words. The words themselves are a proposition in which we have to consider both the subject and secondly the predicate. First, the subject of the proposition, they that are Christ, namely, true Christians, real members of Christ, such as truly belong to Christ, such as have given themselves up to be governed by him, and are indeed acted by his spirit, such, all such persons, for the indefinite is equivalent to all universal, all such and none but such. Secondly, the predicate, they have crucified a flesh with the affections and lusts. By flesh we are here to understand carnal concupiscence, the workings and emotions of corrupt nature. And by the affections we are to understand not the natural but the inordinate affections. For Christ does not abolish and destroy but correct and regulate the affections of those that are in him. And by crucifying the flesh we are not to understand a total extinction or perfect subduing of corrupt nature, but only the deposing of corruption from its regency and dominion in the soul. Its dominion is taken away, though its life be prolonged for a season. But yet its death surely, though slowly, follows crucifixion. The life of crucified persons gradually departing, crown them with their blood. It is just so, in a mortification of sin, and therefore what the apostle in this place calls crucifying, he calls in Romans 8 verse 13, mortifying. You, if you through the Spirit do mortify, if you put to death the deeds of the body, but he chooses in this place to call it crucifying to show not only the conformity there is between the death of Christ and the death of sin, in respect of shame, pain, lingering, slowness, but to denote also the principal means and instruments of mortification, namely the death 
or cross of Jesus Christ, and the virtue in which believers mortify the corruptions of their flesh, the great arguments and persuasives to mortification being drawn from the sufferings of Christ for sin. In a word, he does not say, they that believe Christ was crucified for sin are Christ's, but they and they only are his, who feel as well as profess the power and efficacy of the sufferings of Christ, and a mortification and subduing of their lusts and sinful affections. And so much, briefly, of the parts and sense of the words, the observation follows, doctrine, that a saving interest in Christ may be regularly and strongly inferred and concluded from the mortification of the flesh with its affections and lusts. This point is fully confirmed by those words of the Apostle in Romans 6, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of it might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Mark the force of the apostles' reasoning. If we have been planted into the likeness of his death, namely by the mortification of sin, which resembles or has a likeness to the kind and manner of Christ's death, as was noted above, then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And why so? But because the mortification of sin is an undoubted evidence of the union of such a soul with Christ, which is the very groundwork and principle of that blessed and glorious resurrection. And therefore, he says, verse 11, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Reason thus with yourselves. These mortifying influences of the death of Christ are unquestionable presages of your future blessedness. God never taken this course with any but those who are in Christ and are designed to be glorified with him. The death of your sin is as evidential as anything in the world can be of your spiritual life for the present and of your eternal life with God hereafter. Mortification is a fruit and evidence of your union, and that union is a firm groundwork and certain pledge of your glorification. And so you ought to reckon or reason the case with yourselves as the word signifies. Now for the stating and explanation of this point, I shall in the doctrinal part labor to open and confirm these five things. What the mortification or crucifixion of sin imports. Why this work of the Spirit is expressed by crucifying. Why all that are in Christ must be so crucified or mortified unto sin. What is the true evangelical principle of mortification? How the mortification of sin evinces our interest in Christ, and then apply the whole of this. First, what the mortification or crucifixion of sin imports. And, for clearness sake, I shall speak to it both negatively and positively, showing you what is not intended and what is principally aimed at by the Spirit of God in this expression. First, the crucifying of the flesh does not imply the total abolition of sin in believers, or the destruction of its very being and existence in them for the present. Sanctified souls so put off their corruptions with their dead bodies at death. This will be the effect of our future glorification, not of our present sanctification. Sin does exist in the most mortified believer in the world. Romans 7 verse 17 It still acts in lust in the regenerate soul. Galatians 5 verse 17 Yea, notwithstanding this crucifixion in believers, it still may, in respect of single acts, surprise and captivate them. Psalm 65, verse 3, Romans 7, verse 23. This, therefore, is not the intention of the Spirit of God in this expression. 
Secondly, nor does the crucifixion of sin consist in the suppression of the external acts of sin only. For sin may reign over the souls of men whilst it does not break forth into their lives and growth and open actions. 2 Peter 3 verse 20, Matthew 12 verse 43. Morality in the heathens, as Tertullian well observes, did hide them when it could not kill them. Many a mole shows a white and fair hand who yet has a very foul and black heart. Thirdly, the crucifixion of the flesh does not consist in the cessation of the external acts of sin. For in that respect, the lusts of men may die of their own accord, even a kind of natural death. The members of the body are the weapons of unrighteousness, as the apostle calls them. Age or sickness may so blunt or break those weapons that the soul cannot use them to such sinful purposes and services as it was wont to do in the vigorous and healthful seasons of life. Not that there is less sin in the heart, but because there are less strength and activity in the body, just as it is with an old soldier who has as much skill, policy, and delight as ever in military actions. But age and heart services have so enfeebled him that he can no longer follow the camp. Fourthly, the crucifixion of sin does not consist in the severe castigation of the body and penancing it by stripes, fasting, and tiresome pilgrimages. This may pass for mortification among papists, but never was any loss of the flesh destroyed by this rigor. Christians indeed are bound not to indulge and pamper the body which is the instrument of sin, nor yet must we think that the spiritual corruptions of the soul fill those stripes which are inflicted upon the body. Colossians 2 verse 23, it is not the vanity of superstition, but the power of true religion which crucifies and destroys corruption. It is faith in Christ's blood, not the spilling of our own blood, which gives sin the mortal wound. Secondly, but if you inquire what then is implied in the mortification or crucifixion of sin and in what it consists, I answer first, it necessarily implies the soul's implantation into Christ our union with him, without which it is impossible that any one corruption should be mortified. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. The attempts and endeavors of all others are vain and ineffectual. When we were in the flesh, as the apostle, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit to death. Romans 7, 5. Sin was then in its full dominion, no abstinence, rigor, outward severity. No purposes, promises, or solemn vows could mortify or destroy it. There must be an implantation into Christ before there can be any effectual crucifixion of sin. What believer almost has not in the days of his first convictions tried all external methods and means of mortifying sin, and found all inexperienced to be to as little purpose as the binding of Samson with green withs and cords. But, when he has once come to act faith upon the death of Christ, and the design of mortification has prospered and succeeded to good purpose. Secondly, mortification of sin implies the agency of the Spirit of God in that work, without whose assistances and aids all our endeavors must needs be fruitless. Of this work we may say, as it was said in another case, Zechariah 4 verse 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. When the apostle, therefore, would show by what hand this work of mortification is performed, he expresses it in Romans 8, verse 50. If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. The duty is ours, but the power in which we perform it is God's. 
The Spirit is the only successful combatant against the lusts that war in our members, Galatians 5, verse 17. It is true this does not exclude but implies our endeavors, for it is we through the Spirit who mortify the deeds of the body. But yet all our endeavors without the Spirit's aid and influence avail nothing. Thirdly, the crucifixion of sin necessarily implies the subversion of its dominion in the soul. A mortified sin cannot be a reigning sin, Romans 6, verses 12 to 14. Two things constitute the dominion of sin, namely the fullness of its power and the soul's subjection to it. It's to the fullness of its power that rises from the suitableness it has and pleasure it gives to the corrupt heart of man. It seems to be as necessary as a right hand, as useful and pleasant as a right eye. Matthew 5, verse 29. But the mortified heart is dead to all pleasures and profits of sin. It has no delight or pleasure in it. It becomes its burden and daily complaint. Mortification presupposes the illumination of the mind and conviction of the conscience by reason in which sin cannot deceive and blind the mind or bewitch and ensnare the will and affections as it was wont to do. And consequently, its dominion over the soul is destroyed and lost. Fourthly, the crucifying of the flesh implies a gradual weakening of the power of sin in the soul. The death of the cross is a slow and lingering death, and the crucified person grew weaker and weaker every hour. So it is in the mortification of sin, the soul is still cleansing itself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and perfecting holiness in the fear of God, Second Corinthians 7 verse 1. And as the body of sin is weakened more and more, so the inward man or the new creature is renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. For sanctification is the progressive work of the Spirit, and as holiness increases and roots itself deeper and deeper in the soul, so the power and interest of sin proportionately abates and sinks lower and lower until at length it be swallowed up in victory. Fifthly, the crucifying of the flesh notes to us a believer's designed application of all spiritual means and sanctified instruments for the destruction of it. There is nothing in this world which a gracious heart more vehemently desires and longs for than the death of sin and perfect deliverance from it. The sincerity of which desires does accordingly manifest itself in the daily application of all God's remedies. Such are daily watching against the occasions of sin, Job 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes more than ordinary vigilance over their special or proper sin, Psalm 18, verse 23. I kept myself from mine iniquity, earnest cries to heaven for preventing grace, Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Do not let them have dominion over me. Deep humbling of soul for sins past, which is an excellent preventative to future sins, Second Corinthians 2, verse 11. And that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness wrought it. Care to give no furtherance or advantage to the design of sin by making provision for the flesh to fulfill the loss thereof, as others do, Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Willingness to bear due reproof for sin, Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. These and such like means of mortification regenerate souls are daily using and applying in order to the death of sin. And so much of the first particular what the mortification of sin or crucifying of the flesh implies. 
Secondly, in the next place, we shall examine the reasons why this work of the Spirit is expressed under that trope, or figurative expression of crucifying the flesh. Now the ground and reason of the use of this expression is the resemblance which the mortification of sin bears to the death of the cross. And this appears in five particulars. First, the death of the cross is a pain death, and the mortification of sin is a very painful work. Matthew 25, verse 29. It is as the cutting off of our right hand and plucking out of our right eyes. It will cost many thousands of tears and groans, prayers and strong cries to heaven before one sin will be mortified. Upon the account of the difficulty of this work, and mainly upon this account, the scripture says, Narrow is the way, and straight is the gate that leads to life. And few there be that find it, Matthew 7, verse 14. And that the righteous themselves are scarcely saved. Secondly, the death of the cross is universally painful. Every member, every sense, every sinew, every nerve was a seat and subject of tormenting pain. So it is in the mortification of sin. It is not this or that particular member or act, but the whole body of sin that is to be destroyed, Romans 6, verse 6. And accordingly, the conflict is in every faculty of the soul, for the Spirit of God, by whose hand sin is mortified, does not combat with this or that particular lust only, but with sin as sin. And for that reason, with every sin and every faculty of the soul, so that there are conflicts and anguish in every part. Third, the death of the cross was a slow and lingering death, denying to them that suffered it the favor of a quick dispatch, just so it is in the death of sin. Though the Spirit of God be mortifying it day by day, yet this is a truth still by the sad experience of all believers in the world, that sin is long in dying. And if we ask the reason of this dispensation of God, among others, this seems to be one. Corruptions in believers like the Canaanites in the land of Israel are left to prove and to exercise the people of God. To keep us watching and praying, mourning and believing, yea, wondering and admiring at the riches of pardoning and preserving mercy all our days. Fourthly, the death of the cross is a very opprobrious or shameful death. They that died upon the cross were loaded with ignominy. The crimes for which they died were exposed to the public view. After this manner, sin died, a very shameful and ignominious death. Every true believer draws up a charge against it in every prayer, aggravates and condemns it in every confession, bewails the evil of it with multitudes of tears and groans, making sin as vile and odious as he can find words to express it, though not so vile as it is in its own nature. O oh my God, saith Ezra, I am ashamed and even blush to look up to you. Ezra 9, verse 6. So Daniel in his confession, Daniel's 9, verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us confusion of faces is at this day. Nor can it grieve any believer in the world to accuse, condemn, and shame himself for sin, whilst he remembers and considers that all the shame and confusion of face which he takes to himself goes to the vindication, glory, and honor of his God. As David was content to be more vile still for God, so he pleases the heart of a Christian to magnify and advance the name and glory of God by exposing his own shame and humble and broken-hearted confessions of sin. Fifthly, in a word, the death of the cross was not a natural but a violent death. Such also is the death of sin. Sin dies not of its own accord as nature dies in old men. 
in whom the radical moisture is consumed. For if the Spirit of God did not kill it, it would live to eternity in the souls of men. It is not the everlasting burnings and all the wrath of God which lies upon the damned forever that can destroy sin. Sin, like a salamander, could live to eternity in the fire of God's wrath, so that either it must die a violent death by the hand of the Spirit, or it never dies at all. And so you see why the mortification of sin is properly expressed by the crucifying of the flesh. Thirdly, why all that are in Christ must be so crucified or mortified to sin, and the necessity of this will appear in a number of ways. First, from the inconsistency and contrariety that there is between Christ and unmortified lust. Galatians 5 verse 17. These are contrary the one to the other. There is a threefold inconsistency between Christ and such corruptions. They are not only contrary to the holiness of Christ, 1 John 3 verse 6, Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him i.e., whosoever is thus engulfed and plunged into the lust of the flesh can have no communion with the pure and holy Christ. But there is also an inconsistency between sin and the honor of Christ, 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. As Alexander said to a soldier of his name, Remember that your name is Alexander, and do nothing unworthy of that name. And unmortified lusts are also contrary to the dominion and government of Christ. Luke 9, verse 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These are the self-denying terms upon which all men are admitted into Christ's service. And without mortification and self-denial, he allows no man to call him Lord and Master. Secondly, the necessity of mortification appears from the necessity of conformity between Christ ahead and all the members of his mystical body. For how incongruous and uncomely would it be to see a holy, heavenly Christ leading a company of unclean, carnal, and sensual members? Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lonely. It'd be monstrous to the world to behold a company of lions and wolves following a meek and harmless lamb, men of raging and unmortified lust, professing and owning me for their head of government. And again in 1 John 2, verse 6, he that says he abides in him ought also to walk even as he walked. Either imitate Christ in your practice, or never make pretensions to Christ in your profession. This is what the apostle complained of in Philippians 3, verse 18. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Men cannot study to put a greater dishonor and reproach on Christ than by making his name and profession a cloak and coverage of their filthy lusts. Thirdly, the necessity of crucifying the flesh appears from the method of salvation, as it is stated in the Gospel. God everywhere requires a practice of mortification under pain of damnation, Matthew 18, verse 8. Therefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. The gospel legitimates no hopes of salvation but such as are accompanied with serious endeavors of mortification. 1 John 3 verse 3 Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It was one special end of Christ's coming into the world to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 verse 21 nor will he be a savior to any who remain under the dominion of their own lusts.
Fourthly, the whole stream and current of the gospel puts us under the necessity of mortification. Gospel precepts have respect to this. Colossians 3 verse 5, Mortify your members, therefore, which are upon the earth. 